You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 22nd of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, are scandals harder to weather for politicians whose whole thing is being unscandalous? Justin Trudeau is finding out. My guests Paige Reynolds, Augustin Machalari, Ben Ryland and Thomas Lewis will be here to discuss this and the day's other big stories, including does a spat at an Australian press conference suggest that the Donald Trump School of Media Relations is catching on? At an awards ceremony for awards ceremonies, would the Oscars even get nominated? And do the definitions of what constitutes an Olympic sport need to be tightened? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle 24's Ben Ryland, Paige Reynolds, Augustin Machilari, and from our Toronto Bureau, Thomas Lewis. Welcome all. And we will start in Canada with what appears a significant besmirching of the hitherto apparently unbesmirchable image of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He is embattled, if not yet outright beleaguered, by a scandal which has seen the resignation of Canada's Minister of Veterans Affairs and former Attorney General, Jody Wilson-Raybould. At issue is the allegation that people in the Prime Minister's office lent on Wilson-Raybould when she was Attorney-General not to pursue criminal charges against Canadian engineering firm SNC-Lavalin. Trudeau, as is traditional in such circumstances, denies everything. Um, Thomas, uh, briskly, if you will, what are the basics of what has happened here as far as we understand it? Well, this all begins last year when it's been alleged that the then Attorney General here in Canada, Josie Wilson, Jody Wilson-Raybould, excuse me, uh, was apparently pressurised by uh, personnel at the Prime Minister's office to meddle, if you like, into the legal proceedings being levied against a Quebec-based engineering uh, group, um, SNC-Lavalin. This story was broken by the Globe and Mail newspaper uh, coming up to about three weeks ago now and it really has caused the biggest sort of political scandal I think it's fair to say that Justin Trudeau has faced since he was elected back in 2015 um, last week Josie Wilson Raybould who had been demoted uh, in the eyes of many to the position of Veteran Affairs Minister um, she resigned which meant that she was not now bound by lots of the conventions if you are a cabinet minister of the things that you're allowed to talk about in terms of conversations you had with, say, the Prime Minister or other Cabinet colleagues. Then this week, there was another chapter of drama when the Prime Minister's uh, longest-serving and closest confidant, Gerald Butts, he is widely regarded as being the mastermind of Trudeau's election victory in 2015. He resigned amid this scandal. And now what we have is an inquiry that's opened with lots of senior personnel giving evidence about what they knew, what they didn't know, and uh, what those consequences and what the ramifications are constitutionally and legally about these allegations. So this really is a story that I think Justin Trudeau wanted to sort of quash quite quickly, but he's really failed in in doing so. Uh, Thomas, Justin Trudeau does face an, an election by October at the latest. Does this put a big noticeable dent in him as he prepares for that? 
Um, I think it does. And I think the timing couldn't really be worse. I think over the past 18 months or two years or so, you've really seen Justin Trudeau sort of sheen, if you like, here domestically, waning on lots of different fronts. You've seen lots of controversies about pipeline building, for example, which is very popular in conservative heartlands in the, the west of Canada, but is deeply unpopular with members of many First Nations communities, for example. And those communities are really at the heart of Justin Trudeau's election campaign uh, where he stated that he would work harder than any Prime Minister before effectively to bring reconciliation, true reconciliation between Canada and its First First Nations populations. You've also had things like the renegotiation of the NAFTA Treaty that was seen as a bit of a triumph for Trudeau. But then you saw things like the G7 summit where he was attacked pretty publicly by Donald Trump. I think that sort of dented his view for some Canadians while others saw it as a bit of a triumph for Trudeau standing up uh, to a belligerent leader to the south of the border. Um, So I think whereas in the international psyche, Trudeau has still been held up as something of a shining light in a tumultuous political time, um, I think here domestically that view of him has been pretty different for quite some time now. I think the key question here is, is how much capital his political opponents can make of this. The Conservative Party, headed by a relative newcomer, Andrew Scheer, to the leadership at least. Uh, he's understandably trying to make as much political capital of this as he can. The leader of the far left party, the NDP, he's been in lots of political trouble himself. So I think before this scandal, there was a sense that Justin Trudeau might lose his majority in Parliament come election day, uh, but that actually he would be sure of a win. I think now that that's increasingly being questioned, that he might actually be in real trouble here. Uh, Augustine, moving away from the the particulars uh, of this particular uh, stromash, there, there there is a paradox here, isn't there? That if if you set yourself up as the uh, the new kind of politician, the the sort of clean and transparent and honest politician, even if you actually are all those things, you kind of set yourself up for a a, a bigger fall if something goes askew. Indeed, you do. But to set oneself up as any sort of politician is to invite lashings of criticism. I mean. I did think about this question and I wondered just how new Justin Trudeau really is. You know, he presents himself as, you say, as a clean cut guy uh, who's willing to put these First Nations issues, for First Peoples, sorry, issues uh, at the forefront of his policy making. But then, as Thomas has just pointed out, goes right ahead building a fairly divisive, if not deeply unpopular pipeline. These are the kind of actions of someone who, in my, in, in my view, and I think in the view of many, isn't really a new politician. They're just a politician, right? They're, they're making promises and they're not keeping them. I feel like a new politician or new politics mm, is a new system, surely. It's, 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 it's something more akin to what, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is at least offering from her kind of admittedly still very grassroots-ish level in the States. It's not, it's not just a new face on the same old ideas. Okay, well, we we will have more on that story on tonight's Daily. Uh, We'll move on somewhat now. Uh, Earlier this week, police in Maryland arrested a US Coast Guard officer who had assembled an arsenal of weaponry, impressive even by American standards, and had compiled a list of potential targets, including several prominent media personalities. However, as Christopher Hassan had also written a draft email pondering the best means of killing, and I quote, every last person on Earth, we journalists probably can't take it all too 
personally. Nevertheless, it reignited debate over the hazards to reporters posted by the posed, in fact, posted, posed. Who writes this? By the exhortations of US President Donald Trump, which, as my fellow New South Welsh people have been discovering this week, seems to be catching on. Our state's premier took quite the pop at a reporter from the Newcastle Herald, a redoubtable journal. Uh, Ben, what was actually said? This was an uncomfortable viewing indeed. So the video of this was posted to Twitter by one of the cameramen that just happened to to be there. Uh, Now, what was happening was there was a light rail project that had been just finished after many, many, many delays, lots of controversy. Uh, The Premier, Gladys Bariklian, was there to unveil the shiny new infrastructure alongside the Transport Minister, Andrew Constance. And there was a moment where a journalist from the Newcastle Herald was asking some fairly tough questions, but they they were fair questions about uh, the timing of the light rail, why it had it had taken so long, uh, why they hadn't been able to see plans and, and costings for so long. They were you know they were, they were the nitty gritty of politics. And there was a moment where the 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 uh, transport minister stopped and said, "Sorry, which publication are you from?" And then he answered that he was from the Newcastle Herald and Glad- Gladys Bariklian, the, the state's premier, laughed and said, oh, that's just normal for them. Oh, that's just that's just business as usual for them. So the implication was that these tough questions that, that weren't really putting the government in the best of lights on a day that they were hoping would be a triumph, the implication was that the newspaper was somehow doing something wrong by asking these questions. And it... It's a, if it happened in the US, probably no one would blink an eyelid, but because it happened in Australia, and it happened to a journalist from the Newcastle Herald, we're not even talking the Sydney Morning Herald here, it's a fairly small outlet, and it's someone who's just doing their jobs, and in, as soon as a politician became uncomfortable, they turned everything into an attack on the legitimacy of a journalist asking a question, and that's really what has got the Australian press up in arms, and, uh, and I must say, a lot of people who aren't even involved in the press, a lot of people... People uh, who would just be reading the newspaper were really caught off guard by this. Paige, is, is the is the up in armsness uh, being exhibited by uh, Australian journalists in this particular instance somewhat undignified? I mean, it's not it's not that big a bite she's taken at them, and I, I don't know. I, and without wishing to sound uh, treacherous to the, the the Brotherhood of the Fourth Estate here. Um, we spend a lot of our time beating up on politicians. They're entitled to have the odd swipe back, aren't they? No, I, I think if you were looking at this case um, kind of out of a sort of global context of what's happening to journalism at the moment, perhaps it would seem a little bit extreme. But I think, you know, if we look at what's happened in the States with Trump, his attack on the journalists, uh, that, that has sort of happened ever since he's been in power and before, kind of as, as he was coming to the fore, um, this kind of could be seen as some kind of gateway. So if we allow this to happen, if we allow ourselves to kind of start being walked over, who knows what could happen? We, we could we could end up like the US, perhaps that's sort of scaremongering a little bit. But I think and me, and, me and myself and Ben were discussing this earlier. You know, I think when you're outside of the... Um, sort of journalism structure, you kind of uh, forget how important maybe freedom of press is to democracy. And and I think we can take that a little bit for granted. Um, And, you know, if if you look at the World Press Freedom uh, Reporters at Borders report last year, United States fell two places on the World Press Freedom Index, and they found that for the first time... uh, uh, hostility towards media from political leaders is no longer limited to authoritarian countries. It's happening in the biggest democracy in the world. And, and, I, and I think that is extremely worrying. So, you know, gripes aside.
Andrew, do you recall there was a, many years ago on Australian television, there was an interview that George Negus did with Margaret Thatcher. And Margaret Thatcher had taken issue with something that George Negus had asked her. He, he said, he said I'm, I'm drawing this right out of my memory. Uh, the, George Negus had asked a question about how people on the street had told him something about Margaret Thatcher. And Margaret Thatcher did not like the framing of the question and came back and said, which people? Who are they? What are their names? And George Negus was obviously unable to answer this question, and so it just turned into a bit of a standoff between the two. That's an example of a politician taking issue with a journalist who was simply asking, asking a question, but it wasn't attacking the legitimacy of the journalist simply asking a question. You know, and there are, there are similar examples. Uh, there was a, another example of Bob Hawke, the former Prime Minister of Australia, being asked some tough questions by uh, Richard Carlton. I was just, I was just remembering was that example, yeah. And again, this... This row happened, but it was it never got as far as the politician uh, basically calling into question whether the media should be doing what it's supposed to do, what it's supposed to function as. And I think that's where things have really started to shift in recent times. I remember that I, I, I saw that clip again recently uh, for a thing I was researching for Monocle 24. And his, his precise words were when Richard Carlton started on him, Bob Hawke, who'd just become leader of the opposition, just said to him, you haven't improved, have you? <laughs> uh, but, but, but the interview did actually go quite well from there, I think, in fairness. Augustine, is, is that where the line is, that it's, it's, it's okay in individual situations for a politician to have a bit of a snap back, but if, if, they're, if they're seen or heard to be undermining the entire purpose of journalism, that that's where the line is crossed? Yeah, I mean, it would be if journalism existed as a kind of supreme you know, bastion of impartiality. It doesn't. <laughs> but I, I was just reflecting on it then, and it seems to me that actually, certainly in the UK... In Australia as well, I would have thought where Murdoch's tendrils spread just as long, uh, and 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 the, the the tendrils of any kind of newspaper baron, it seems like politicians are more taking issue when papers are kind of acting from without their party line, so to speak. You know, you have papers in uh, I don't know I can't speak for Australian media unfortunately but certainly here there are uh, political associations that we make with almost all the major broadsheets uh, and any issues that politi- politicians take with them you know kind of can be expected depending on where they come from you know uh uh, a, a conservative politician is always going to roll their eyes if they get a certain kind of question from The Guardian. They might not actively speak out. But I don't think that this notion that the the press is under attack is really that helpful when it's the, the, the battle lines, so to speak, aren't that clear. I do think that if, if the press is legitimately under attack, then it is it is the job of the journalist to then call that out. It's not going to be helpful to anyone in our profession, I wouldn't think, to simply lay over and, and take the attack. I mean, to, to use the famous example of Jim Acosta at, at the White House, to have his microphone try... Uh, they, they tried to take his microphone forcibly away from him, and he continued asking the question, of course, and then subsequently had his press pass cancelled because of that. But it was really up to him. He held that responsibility to to show everyone that this is what happens when you ask some tough questions and the politicians don't want to answer those questions. Now, if it weren't for, for people like Jim Acosta drawing attention to those sorts of scenarios, the only communication between uh, people and the politicians would be Twitter. 
And that, I think, is probably a recipe for, what, totalitarianism? I don't know what that's a recipe for. Exactly. If the only sort of, yeah, if, if that became the sole means of political discourse, the, the reduction of absolutely all of it to a, a social media chimpanzee's tea party. Well, when, when, was, the last time, when was the last time that we heard uh, Donald Trump give a press conference? Uh, in fairness to him, actually, quite recently, though, it was extremely strange. It was after his announcement about the national emergency. I'm not really sure what, what you, that you could dignify what followed necessarily with the title press conference. In the was that in the uh, in the in the press brief, in the press briefing room? No, he hasn't. I don't think he's done that for a very long time. Mm. Mm. Well, it's just something to look forward to, of course. Um, <laughs> we, we will take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Thomas Lewis, Paige Reynolds, Augusta Machilari and Ben Ryland. Coming up next, the Oscars, which do not presently appear on course to win themselves many prizes. The Rolling Hills of Somerset might not be the most usual spot for a world-class art space, but it proved to be the perfect fit for Hauser & Wirth, an international art gallery with its heart in the countryside. Monocle Films reviews a weird and wonderful show that looks at our relationship with the land. We used to base our knowledge, our experience of the world, on the land, on nature, on the other beings that shared the world. Now we don't. So I'm trying to, in a way, re-establish a relationship to a form of knowledge that could be useful for us. Somerset's Strange Fruit, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Miller. Still with me are Augustin Machilari, Paige Reynolds, Ben Ryland and Thomas Lewis. This coming Sunday night, we'll see the 91st annual distribution of the Academy Awards. If one were especially keen to put a positive gloss on the pre-show preparations, one might characterise them as an exemplary demonstration of expectation management, which is to say that almost everyone appears resigned to these Oscars being a dud. There isn't a host. There has been some talk of bunging out the lesser baubles during ad breaks and a general aura of existential panic has been permitted to coalesce. Uh, ben, you're, you're probably the most noted cineast on Midori House today, which I think is probably a pretty low bar to clear, but nonetheless... Uh, I'll still take it as a compliment. Exactly. I, oh, absolutely. Absolutely take <laughs> it. Uh, will you be watching it and why? I won't be watching it live because it's at a stupid time if you live here in the UK, so I'll be watching the replay the next morning. Uh, and that, I think, is probably a little bit of a preview of things to come, shall we say, for a lot of people who are tuning into the Oscars uh, in this modern age. We do know that live TV viewing figures are going down down, down. And part of the problem, I think, with the Oscars is that it's still presented as a long, very, very long very, telecast. Very, long very, very, very long. I've got some figures here. Last year's was uh, three hours and 53 minutes. That's very long, isn't it? Uh, the first one, guess how long that went for, Andrew? Uh, 27 minutes. 15 minutes. Amazing. Wasn't it amazing? See, now that, that's the future. <laughs> it is the future. Uh, now, the first TV version uh, ran for 92 minutes. Uh, but if, if you just look at who's watching the Oscars, uh, the 18 to 49 demographic, uh, which is one of the most important ones for TV viewing figures, last year's was down 25% from a year earlier. Uh, we, if we look at that even further, we've got 18 to 34, down 29%. So we are looking at the Oscars going down, down, down. And I do think that they have tried. They've tried to fix this year's 
or at least make a couple of small changes to make it a, a little bit more digestible to, to modern viewers. And it hasn't really worked, mostly because every idea they've put out there, they've then backtracked on. There was the most popular film, or best blockbuster, as some people called it. They since cancelled that idea. They had the, the host, which was meant to be a comedian who would appeal to the young'uns. It turned out he was uh, a bit homophobic, so they cancelled him too. Uh, they then had this idea of handing out some of the awards during the commercial breaks. There were a lot of people <laughs> who weren't happy with that, so they cancelled that as well. It's business as usual. Nothing's really changed except that we won't have a host for the first time in 30 years, which might actually turn out to be a good thing. But it, they are going to have to make a lot of changes, and I'll just give you my tip before you start playing the music over me speaking right now. Um, my tip would be, number one, ban the thank yous. One of the most boring things about the Oscars is when they get up on stage and instead of uh, giving us a delightful little speech like Francis McDormand might do, they simply read off a whole bunch of thank yous to people that no one's ever heard of. If you grouped that up for all of the people, the, the person that won for best sound mixing with all of his thank yous, like, fine, I, I get that you won an Oscar, that's great. I'm no, not taking that away from you, but we don't need to hear the 47 people that helped you win that along the way. I know, you could just, you could just send them all a nice card afterwards. Um, Thomas, you're the only one here, I think, for whom this won't be on at a ludicrous hour. Will you be devoting your Sunday evening to watching all 19 hours of the Oscars? Oh, absolutely. My tux is in the dry cleaners as we speak, Andrew. I'll be there sort of raising a little glass, probably on my own somewhere. A a melancholy thought, Thomas. You in (laughs) in a freshly dry clean tuxedo watching the Oscars alone. I'm sure others would see it as quite a romantic vision, <laughs> Andrew. Um, one thing I'd like to say is I think, for, you know, as someone who's sort of been beguiled by the Oscars, you know, for many, many years, I think the realisation that actually in America, for many of the show's producers, that this is actually just another TV show and that ratings matter, advertising matters, is sort of slightly depressing. I mean, I don't see why the Oscars can't be 25 hours long, actually. It's the Oscars, for goodness sakes. I mean, it only happens once a year. It is the crowning glory of, you know, that sort of part of artistic output. It's a little bit like when people complain that the Olympics opening ceremony is too long. It's like, well, for goodness sake, it's the Olympics. You know, it only happens once every four years. There are so few of these great sort of totemic moments, I think. Everything's being boiled down to sort of two minutes long, 30 seconds long, that actually surely it's quite nice to have these things that still warrant having, uh, you know, their moment, extended, prolonged moment kind of on the annual calendar. And I think actually it's fine not to have a host. Hopefully that'll slide down the proceedings in its own right anyway. I don't really need the song and dance numbers in between. Just show me who won. Show me the shock on their faces as they get the biggest prize of their lives. I think that's the magic of it all still. Well, seeing as how Thomas has there invoked uh, the Olympics and has therefore nicely teed up our last item, we will move on to that. We will have uh, on Monday, I think, fairly solid coverage over who won and who didn't and what it all means at the Oscars. Uh, But finally, we do appear to have reached that point in Olympic build-ups in which the hosts of the next games but one start proposing new sports in order to scare up some airtime on programmes such as this. Organisers of the 2024 games in Paris have announced that breakdancing has been proposed for inclusion. Um, Paige, this this doesn't strike me at least as any sillier than rhythmic gymnastics or synchronised swimming or similar such things, but you, I understand, have been diligently researching all afternoon various other weirdnesses which have been been consecrated by the Olympic 
whatever it is you consecrate things with. Indeed, Andrew. I think I think the other topics perhaps I wasn't as strong on, but I but I will come to the fore with this one. The, the listeners will um, be the judge of that. I'm, I love a good listicle, so I, I found a few about uh, the strangest sports you didn't know were once in the Olympics. Interesting you mention synchronised swimming there. I've, I've found out today that actually... Uh, for three three Olympics uh, from 1984 to 1992, um, solo synchronized swimming was a sport, which is which is basically paradoxical. You might yeah, think, it's, how it's, does one synchronize with themselves? It's basically swimming. It is. It's swim swim dancing. I'm not sure. Um, Maybe they synchronize their limbs so that all their limbs are doing the same thing. Maybe sync. we should all YouTube it. I don't know, but do they have? Do they have? Did they film it back then? Anyway, <laughs> anyway, many thoughts. Um, other some other sports that were a bit bizarre. Um, we've got live pigeon shooting, which I think I feel like Andrew. I think you'd like that one. Why, why do you assume that I I would revel in the in the in the in the gratuitous slaughter of our feathery avian? Friends, I'm not sure. I think I could just see you with some headphones and some sort of big glasses with a. Whatever, whatever, whatever gun. The, the man who won it in, in 1900, which was the only year, um, shot down 21 pigeons. <laughs> Quite fair. The, Quite the, 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 the one that I think is a winner, there was a minor scandal I remember reading about a few months back that participants, not in an Olympic curling um, tournament, but in a, a reasonably sort of prestigious curling tournament, had been drunk. And it just occurred to me, drunk curling. Oh. I would watch... <laughs> All day. That oh. would be amazing. Watch, perhaps. I would not take part in it. Oh, God, no. Why would you? But, <laughs> but watching drunk people try to do curling, <laughs> that's just, that's not going to get boring ever. No. Breakdancing at the Olympics, Ben, are you mm. in favour of this? I don't really care. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, when it comes to the Olympics, I think they're, they're certainly safe on television. We can, we can certainly assume that the Olympics will stay on television uh, for the time being. Unlike the Oscars, of course, if they get too boring, they'll just take them they'll take them off the TV um, I was thinking about what I might like to throw in there for a, a, an Please. Olympic activity I'll say it's not really a sport I suppose uh, but anyone who's seen RuPaul's drag race would be with me on this I would like to see a lip sync for your life category at the Olympics uh, which is open to everyone not just drag queens Ben what would you sing Oh, I well, he he wouldn't be singing as I Just understand judging. it. He would be he would be he would be lip syncing. <laughs> I wouldn't be at liberty to say right now, but it would probably be something by either Shirley Bassey or Frank Sinatra. Fantastic, uh, Augustine. Is there anything you would like to see added to the Olympic roster, and perhaps what you would like to see subtracted from it in order to make room? Yeah, I mean, I think we could lose. We could lose a lot of it. We could really trim it down. <laughs> I like all the I like the boxing, I like the fencing. I think we could get soccer out because there's the World Cup. So why do we need yeah, football? Fine. Yep, Let's yep, get rid yep. of that. Good. Um and I, I you know, the feeling that I get when I watch these sorts of athletics is the same feeling I get when I watch someone really successfully throwing little bits of rubbish into the bin from the other side of the room. Just these like minor feats of uh, hand eye coordination. It's like like golf. Golf is the same thing. Right? Are you, you argue, arguing that throwing little bits of rubbish into the bin from the other side of the room should be an Olympic sport? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm arguing. It um, both appeals to my sort of weird, satisfying, oh, that's satisfying, oh, he did it. And also, <laughs> I like the kind of existential angst of it. So, yes, that would be my nomination for the Olympics well, would, 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 you, would, you, would you, and I realise we're, we're winging an entire new concept here, would you just call it 
throwing little small pieces of rubbish into the bin from the other side of the room, or, or would you give it a name in the same way that curling, for example, isn't actually referred to as waving brooms at a stony thing on the ice? Indeed, yeah. You'd have to standardise it somehow, so it wouldn't be able to be actual bits of rubbish. It might have to be bits of rubbish that weigh... This, it would have to be an object, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, but then... The, the, but, yeah, Do you remember the app, but Paper then, Toss? But then you've, <laughs> then, you've bas- <laughs> but then you've basically invented basketball. Sure, but you'd be static and there'd be no one trying to take the piece of rubbish away from you. And it'd you. be in a really depressing office setting. Yeah, strip lights. <laughs> strip yeah. lights on the ceiling and you have to be very Water far coolers as obstacles. The, no obstacles. Just distance. <laughs> this, this, this conversation has taken an unexpected direction. In all seriousness, Andrew, I think actually it might be nice to include something completely left of field. For example, Australian rules football. Now, that is something that you and I would understand straight away, but to the rest of the world, it would be very perplexing. I'd also, love we, to see we, other nations we'd try win. That. Well, exactly. We'd have an unfair advantage, as Australia always does anyway. Well, as we do in most you know, things, that is true. All that space and not much to do, so people are just naturally really be- good Because we are such extraordinary physical specimens uh, as, as, <laughs> as a people. Um, Australian rules football has been played at an Olympic Games as an exhibition sport at the 1956 Melbourne Olympics, of now course. Now, that makes sense. That, maybe they need to introduce some sort of category where each nation taking part, each Olympics, gets to choose their own national sport to throw in as an official an official game. Okay, well, I, I think uh, for our, our many listeners on the International Olympic Committee, there's, 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 there's a lot to work with there. We have the introduction of Australian rules football uh, as an Olympic sport and also uh, throwing small items of rubbish into a bin from the other side of a depressing office. <laughs> They both have merit. Um, That does bring us to the end of today's show. Paige Reynolds, Augusta Machilari, Ben Ryland and in Toronto, Thomas Lewis. Thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Fernando Augusta Pacheco and Rory Goodrick. Our studio manager was George McDonough. More music next at 1900. It's The Menu with Marcus Hippie. There's more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time Monday. That is 1800 London time. Thank you for listening. Have a good weekend. (laughs) 